Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Church London catch-up service. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a passion to present Jesus to London and would love for you to be part of the adventure. So why not say hello to us by visiting our website manualchurchlondon.org so we can get back to you and say a bit more of a personal hello. amongst the Emmanuel family. We're going to be carrying on our series. We're in the book of Nehemiah uh, at the moment. So just to really quickly catch some of you up, um, that's a a book in the Old Testament about uh, a man. This is way before Jesus came from heaven to earth and lived, died, rose again. Um, And and this man essentially is is living in a distant land, a foreign land. uh, And he hears the news that Jerusalem, which is the city of God, is in ruin. And it breaks his heart. He's broken because not only the city of God is in ruin, but it means that the people aren't gathered together to worship God and to to bring glory to his name. And he's moved with compassion. He cries out to God, and then God grants him favor with the king to go and to restore and to rebuild this, this city. And when we look at stories in the Old Testament, we need to remember they're a foreshadow for what's to come. So we don't look at a story like this and draw completely straight lines to how we're living. We're going to look at battles today and opposition and the threat of the enemy. Uh, and we don't need to all get tooled up and go out into London and, and just cry, let's have it. Uh, that's not all we need to do. This is a foreshadow uh, to a battle that is very real, very real, but it's not the same as we read in Nehemiah at that point. This is a battle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities of the evil one. And it's important just to start there, if we're going to look at opposition today, to say that there is a reality to opposition. There's a reality to it. You know, the build that we're talking about through Nehemiah is, is building Emmanuel Church London. It means building our lives, those of you that have said yes to Jesus, building our lives on Jesus and building the church, this particular church, to be part of a, a wider movement across planet Earth, the church, for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I want to just say this from the outset, that if you choose to build life on Jesus and if you choose to say yes to building life with us here at Emmanuel, it's going to be full of joy But I tell you this, it ain't going to be easy. 100% it's not going to be easy. Not just because it's hard work to organize loads of people, which it is, trust me, and those of you that work with people, right? It's it's difficult. Anyone work with people, like customer service and just organizing people? A few quick hands go up. Yeah, don't remind me. I'm there again tomorrow. It's difficult. Building the church can be difficult, but that's not what I'm talking about, uh, really. What I'm talking about is what we're trying to build here And if you're choosing to build life on Jesus, it's not neutral. It's not neutral territory. It comes with opposition. So when I talk about, like in the first week of Nehemiah, and saying it would be really great if we grew as a church and if we went through to screen 11 because we've got more people, that would be great, wouldn't it? We're like, yeah, that would be great. It would be really great if we got hold of a building so that we can gather together and we can do all the different things that we want to do through the week. We'd be like, yeah, that would be amazing. It would be so cool just to have a a space that we can just get together in the week. We need to remember behind all of that, there's an agenda that isn't about buildings and it's not about screens and it's not about us just sort of like caressing our own ego. Here at Emmanuel Church London, we want to see people come from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We want to see people who are oppressed and and pushed down by the world around them set free by the work and the power of Jesus Christ. We want to see those in society who are downtrodden and pushed to the fringes, fed and clothed and interceded for. This is what we're about as a people. We want to be those that bring the kingdom of light into the kingdom of darkness. 
And so I want to remind you again that this is not a neutral work. That there is an enemy. There is an enemy. The Bible talks about him being called the devil, Satan. The father of all lies. And he is real. And we need to get smart to that. And we need to understand that. And we need to live our lives accordingly. In the knowledge that he exists and that he has schemes. But not in fear and intimidation. Because as we've been singing about and as we've heard and Stu's led us there already, God is greater. When we talk about the battle that we're in and that when we're building lives on Jesus, and remember Nehemiah, this is all pre-Jesus. Well, those of us that are in Christ Jesus, those of us that have said yes to him, the Bible says that we're in him. That means we're in his victory. It means that as we build and as we're aware of the enemy, that we're not in this sort of like equal battle where these two forces come into the boxing ring and who knows who's going to win. That's not what's going down at all. The victory is Christ's. And so for those that are in Christ, we can have confidence. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a battle. And it doesn't mean that there isn't an evil one that wants to do us harm and destruction. And when we think about building the city, he'll do everything that he can possibly do to pull us down from building the walls. He'll do everything he can to stomp on us and keep us from doing the work and the purposes of God. Why? Because he hates the light. He hates Jesus. He hates the church. He hates the idea of the church succeeding, and we need to smarten up and understand what he's about. So we're going to look through quite a lot of the Bible today. There's two chapters that we're going to look at, chapter 4 in Nehemiah and chapter 6. And I'm not going to apologize for reading a lot of the Bible today, but we are going to read a lot of the Bible today. So I want you guys to, to listen up. If you're not used to the Bible, it's absolutely fine. It's going to come up on the screen. But I want you to try the best that you can just to engage with the story as we track through and we're going to try and draw some stuff out. That I guess I, my, my hope is today is not to share my own wisdom, maybe a little bit of experience, um, but that the wisdom of God would strengthen our hearts today. How do we build? How do we fight? How do we resist opposition? That's been my prayer, that we would just receive wisdom today and be like, oh, wow, it's like that. That's how I'm going to build. Okay, you with me? Good, five of us are. Hopefully you all will be by the end. Let's read in chapter 4. It says, Now when, when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? And burned ones at that. Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him. And he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now here's a good line. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. You hear that bit as well? The people had a mind to work. It's a good thing to work. I want to start in, in this place right from the outset. One of the weapons of the enemy that he's going to come against you and against us as a church, out and out, is mockery. He's going to mock you. He's going to mock us. And he's going to use the world and people around us to do it. It's going to be subtle at times, and sometimes it's going to be really obvious. And it's going to dig 
and prod and poke at your pride and at my pride. Because believe it or not, you're not perfect and nor am I and I've got pride and so have you. And he's going to come and he's going to poke at it. And this would have been a hard moment for Nehemiah, right? Called by God, he's on a mission and he's back to the city and it's like, right, let's get to it. And the people are all around and they get building and then these two men, not just ordinary characters, two guys that have got high profile in society. And this isn't just like a pint down the pub. Listen, there isn't a weekend that I go out for a pint and don't get mocked for being a Christian, right? Every time I'm on the terraces at the mighty Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, sorry, I have to get in every week, don't I? I'll, I'll, I'll get it ripped out of me. Just, just this week, I was out with a few friends and they'll be saying things. It's not like a gentle poke. And, and back in the day, that would have really rumbled me. Do you know why? Because I, there was pride. I was building the, the wrong wall and with the wrong motives. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But this is in front of loads of people. And this isn't just like a little gentle... Pro- they're, they're, they're trying to stop the work before it's even begun. Trying to sort of say, you're going you're gonna to do what? You're going to build a wall out of this? Really? That's what you're going to do, is it? In front of loads of people. And that would have been a tough thing for Nehemiah. Maybe you can relate, just in the way that I've just said. Maybe down the pub, maybe at work. Being a Christian, someone's like, you what? You, you believe in all of that? You actually believe that Jesus is going to come again? You believe that actually he went to the cross and is risen? You're like, yeah. Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's not just in front of a couple of people. Maybe sometimes it's been in front of loads of people. You know the attempt of mockery? The attempt of mockery is to basically dilute what it is that you believe, the zeal, to take it away, to stop what you've started. Every time I look at something today, I want us to remind ourselves, not just of Nehemiah, but I want us to remind ourselves of Jesus, who is the greater Nehemiah. You know, it wasn't just Nehemiah that was mocked for doing the work of God. Think about Jesus. When Jesus is in front of Pilate, and then is handed over to the Roman soldiers, do you know, In Matthew 27, it says that they gathered a battalion. So what could have happened is a couple of soldiers could have taken Jesus out into the courts and given him a bit of a shoo-in, taken the mickey out of him. But they went and gathered a battalion. That would have been about 420 to 650 people, something like that. I looked it up, and it varies. So that's why there's a discrepancy there. It's not on me. (laughs) Talk to Google. But whatever, hundreds of men. Hundreds of men gathered... And then they put a robe on Jesus, and they twisted a thorny crown together. And these thorns were like this, this long, and they wedged it into his head. And then they began to beat him and whip him and spit on him. And all the time that this was going on, they were taken to mick by falling to their feet and saying, All hail, King of the Jews. And these hundreds of men were gathered around, laughing and mocking Jesus. What does Jesus do in that moment? Well, I I think he does something quite similar to what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah doesn't seem to be that put off. Nehemiah's like, oh, yeah, taking the mick, okay, yep, yep, all the people here, yep. So we build the wall. There's a maturity about how Nehemiah deals with it. In the same way as Jesus is being mocked by hundreds of Roman soldiers, he could have done anything, right? Angel armies, bolts of lightning. I mean, you name it, could do it, because it's Jesus, right? The son of the living God. But what does he do? Keeps building. Keeps building by being obedient to the Father. Doesn't let mockery put him off the work that the Lord's called him to. Even when Jesus goes to the cross, he's hanging on the cross, naked and ashamed in front of his own mum. Ever thought about that? As a 30-something-year-old man, naked, 
beaten, shamed in front of his mum, the men that he had been leading, teaching, men and women that he had healed, people that had been following him, and here he is broken. And as people walk by that situation, they point at him and they laugh at him. And they say he could heal other people, but he can't even heal himself. What does he do in that moment? He carries on building the walls. He carries on doing the will of the Father by dying a sinner's death so that people like you and me don't have to. See, I think mockery only really finds its target when there's pride in our hearts and we've missed what it is that we're actually building. See, it doesn't really bother Nehemiah because he knows who he's building for and he knows why he's building. It doesn't distract Jesus because he's so secure in who he is, so aware of what the mission is that it doesn't put him off. But you see, the moment you start building for yourself, the moment that you're trying to be the cool Christian, have anyone tried doing that, by the way? You come unstuck so quickly, don't you, right? Because it ain't just about sandals and rainbow guitar straps that make you uncool when you're a Christian. Have you realized that yet? Yeah? People go to me, oh, you're one of the, the cool Christians. I'm like, nah, not really. Just hang out with me for like a week or so. Come to a prayer meeting and then you'll see that I'm not one of the cool Christians. Like, there isn't like cool Christians and uncool Christians. There's those who follow Christ and those that don't really follow Christ. Those that follow Christ and those that are serving an imposter, serving themselves. And see, when you're mocked, it'll only find a landing pad if there's pride in your heart. So there's a maturity here. Now, I'm not saying that that's easy, but there's a maturing that we have to go through, church. That when people take the rip out of you for following Jesus, when people start to say to you, what on earth are you doing? What are you building? You're like, yeah, I know, it's not going to make overly a lot of sense to you. 1 Corinthians, right? The gospel is going to be folly to the rest of the world, right? 1 Corinthians 1 somewhere in there. 14, I think. <laughs> Don't know. Uh, it's in there. And, and we just need to remember that. You're not trying to impress the world. That's not what we're trying to do. And so you're going to get the rip taked out of you sometimes for being a Christian. And that's all right. That's all right. We need to grow up and be mature. And sometimes it's going to be really subtle and sometimes it's going to be really serious. But we can deal with it when we remember our identity in Christ and what it is that we're really building. And what's most important? Let me keep reading, otherwise I'm going to get stuck in this. Right. Let's keep going. Let's look further on into to chapter 4. It says, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were really angry. There it is again. Every time the wall starts to get built, the enemy gets angry. There's truth in that. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion. And we prayed to our God, and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. There's like a, a fainting here, and, and, and are we really going to be able to do it? And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we'll come among them and will kill them and will stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions, and they said to us ten times, you've got to return to us. It's that fellow Jew saying, you've got to come out because you're all going to die. So, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. 
Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives and for your homes. Epic speeches didn't start in Braveheart, right? Nehemiah has nailed it in this moment before the battle. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that they labored on the work with one hand and they held a weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and it's widely spread. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. Wow. There's some physical endurance there, right? I also said to the people at this time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be on guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men who were on guard who had followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So one thing we know is that this city is really stinky by now because these guys didn't change their clothes for a very, very long time. This was all part of, you might be thinking, why didn't they change their clothes? Listen, they're staying alert. They're staying on their guard. The reality of the enemy is that he is going to come with a threat, and it's a real threat. And so, church, we must stay alert. The attack of the enemy, when it comes to doing life, is not possible It's inevitable. Church, if you don't know that by now, let me just help you and do you a favor. It is inevitable. You are not failing as a Christian when the attack comes to you. That is not the reality. You are living out an authentic life building on Jesus Christ. He came under attack. I've come under attack. You'll come under attack. We all will. It's a reality, but we must stay alert. Not just to the reality that there's an enemy that exists, but that the enemy will attack. And so we must defend ourselves. It says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's looking for weakness. He's looking for a way in. And I don't mean just weakness and we'll, we'll get to all of that. He's looking for an opportunity to take us down from the wall. And whether he can do that to an individual, or if he can do that to a whole congregation, to a family, he'll do it. Have you ever wondered as a Christian why life isn't easy? Anyone here nailed it with finding prayer just absolutely easy? Anyone? I've not found anyone. Even the people that are really good at it wouldn't say it's an easy thing. Ever wondered why it's so difficult to pray, why it's so difficult to read the Bible? Ever wonder why it's so difficult to resist the world and to concentrate on Jesus? It's because there's an enemy. And he comes and he threatens. And he comes with attack. And and the way I see it in this passage is there's three things that Nehemiah does that we've got to grab hold of, church. The first is that he prays. Did you notice that in verse 9? Again, it's this little like throwaway. And we prayed. And we prayed. 
You know, when we invite you to, to come and join us at the prayer meetings at the beginning and the end of term, it's not like, oh, you know what, as Christians, it's a really good thing sometimes to do this. Uh, tick in the box, we've prayed. You know, when we pray, the Father who created all things, who sent his son Jesus Christ to die on our behalf, when we pray, he hears us and he responds to us. So if we live in an age where there is a battle, if we live in an age where we are at war, we better start praying, right? Because I don't know about you, I don't know enough of the enemy and enough of his schemes, and he's not overly clever, but I on my own cannot deal with it. Because there's moments where the enemy attacks, and I'm like, I've got nothing. I feel so weak and so vulnerable. I feel like I've lost it all. I need my God. I need my God. And so we must pray. Um, John Piper um, famously says this, we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is a war. Do you know that life is a war? Prayer matters. We have to get good at gathering together and praying. But the other thing that Nehemiah does is that he reminds the people so the promises of God start to come into play as well. In verse 14, he says, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He doesn't say, guys, grit your teeth. Those of you that have been working out, you come to the front because we're going to send you in. He doesn't start there. He doesn't say, look at the tools that we've made. Look who we are. We can take anybody. Gathers everyone together and he says, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember, the Lord is great and awesome. You know, when you're walking through the valley, when you're in the darkness, when you get the news that you dreaded, when that thing happens in a relationship that you're in and it just rips your heart out, when the thing that happens in life where you think, I never thought it'd happen to me, don't grit your teeth. Don't try really hard. Remind yourself. The Lord is great, and he's awesome. Remind yourself of the promises. Stu spoke on this a few weeks ago. The Bible, from front to back, full of promises about who he is and how he sees you. That he'll never forsake you. That he'll walk with you every single step of the way, in this life and into the next. He won't abandon you. He loves you. He won't reject you. He'll comfort you. He'll fortify you. We have to get hold of promises, church, not just try really hard to keep moving forward. But the last thing is this, and this is really important for us. So they pray, and they get hold of the promises of God, but he positions the people. So he gets the clans together, and he puts them in the right place, and they stand their ground. And then the enemy hears, and they're like, oh, okay, they've beaten us to it. We can't just go and attack. But then even when they get back to the work, it's just amazing, isn't it? They're, they're just ready for a scuff. The whole time, they're ready for a scuff. And you might be like, really? Do we really need to live like that? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We need to build the church with the sword on our side. We need to build in prayer and in the knowledge of the word of God. We need to be quick to open our Bibles and say, it says this. This is what we're building on. This is our foundation. This is how we fight. We need to be quick by running to the Lord and saying, it's you. You are great and awesome. Not us. We're not great and awesome. It's you. That's what it means to build tooled up. That's what it means to build ready for a fight. Alert. And then there's this beautiful moment where he says, when the trumpet sounds, 
and you hear that trumpet, that's where we're going to rally to. Back in the olden days, <laughs> that's a phrase that I haven't used for a while, probably since I was like 10, but there you go. Uh, they used to raise the standard, this big flag that used to go up. So if it was like, think like medieval times, right? And everyone's scattered across the battlefield. And this standard would go up, this huge flag with the emblem of the, the people that you were fighting for. And it would be like a rallying point. It's like where all the army would come to to regather and to go again. Nehemiah's doing that. When you hear the trumpet, gather together around it. And you know, we have to get good at raising the trumpet. We have to get good at blowing the trumpet. When, when the attack comes upon us, it's no good just trying to go it alone. And we can't just keep coming into church and sitting on the fringes of church and then being like, I just feel quite isolated. I'm going through a hard time at the moment. God bless you. We don't want you going through a hard time on your own. We don't. So we need to get together. We need to be brave and blow the trumpet. We need to learn how to build lives together. That's why connect groups are so important. Because connect groups aren't just a jolly. <laughs> they are, and we want to build and get to know one another, but because there's purpose and intention. We want to do life outside of a Sunday together, where we pray together, where we encourage one another, where we get into the word of God together, and where we've got relationship that when things get tough, we can blow the trumpet and the people come and gather around us. All of us have got to be part of creating that kind of culture here at Emmanuel. All of us need to be ready to respond when the trumpet sounds, but all of us also have to be vulnerable enough to blow the trumpet when we're in trouble. And that's a hard thing. I think Jesus, again, shows us all three of these things in his life. Jesus prayed all the time. If Jesus did it, we should do it, right? We should do it. He was always in prayer. He knew the promises of God. And he even lent on people. They didn't always do a good job at it in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's like, keep watch, be prayerful, and they will fall asleep. But the principle is still there, right? That in the life of Jesus, he was building closely with friends, leaning into one another. It's such an important thing to do when we're under threat. You still with me, church, yeah? Let's keep going, okay? Let's get into chapter 6. It says, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of the enemies heard that I had built the wall, by the way, we're coming back to chapter 5 next week. That's not just an oversight. Uh, and there was no breach left in it, although up until that point, I had not set the doors on the gates yet. I love that bit. It's like a, a guy doing a bit of DIY at home, isn't it? And it's like, yeah, I finished the extension. The doors aren't on yet, and I haven't put the windows in. But anyway, side note, he was doing a great job. Sam Ballett and Geshem <laughs> sent to me saying, come, let's meet together. At Hecathrim, this is where you need to get up here and do your thing, in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. This is fascinating, isn't it? The people that were about were just trying to raise an army to go up against these people are now sending them a letter saying, hey, do you want to come down and have a cup of tea? It's like, no, I'm all right, thank you very much. You just tried to go to war against me. One of the things that we need to learn here is that the enemy will always come to us to attempt to bring compromise. To bring compromise to how we're building our lives in Jesus on the word of God, not on what the world's got to say, but on the word of God. And in underneath that, it's just pure distraction. 
And we've got to combat it with focus. With focus on what we're doing. So often we're invited into being distracted when it comes to lives living for Jesus. And, and it can work out in a number of different ways. But when I was preparing this, I, I guess this is the, the main thing I really felt like we need to just major on as a, as a church and just the reality of where we're at and where we live and all that kind of stuff is what people and objects, what pastimes come to us with the subtle promise of satisfaction. And they say, we're not going to cause you any harm. It's not going to be a problem. This is all good. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. So this is permissible. We're not talking about like grotesque sin or anything like that. So you can come and have a go at this. You can come and do this. And we buy the lie, and we start to spend time there. We get distracted. We come off the wall, and we start to do some stuff there. And when I was praying and just thinking this through, I, I really believe this, and I believe this for myself. Part of the reason why I probably found it a little bit heavy coming into this, but I believe it for myself, and probably many of us can relate, that on that day, when we see Jesus face to face, we will be welcomed home. But on that day, when we see Jesus for who he really is, and when we get a fuller grasp of what the church really is, and everything that he had intended for the church, I do wonder how much we're going to look back, how much I'm going to look back and see how much time I wasted. And not going to get into it all now, but it talks about going into eternity through the flames, through the fire. There's, there's even like a pain to that. So don't get me wrong, it's going to be a good day. But we can waste time. We can get distracted. And I think that can come with, with deep hurt and pain. Listen again to Nehemiah's response. It's beautiful. Almost sounds a little bit arrogant. He says, oh, you want me to come down? He's like, nah. He says, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. It's like, are you actually mental? Obviously, I'm not going to come down. Look what I'm doing. You just don't understand what I'm doing. So no way am I going to come down. Think about the life of Jesus. How many times people try to distract Jesus and get his head to turn. Even sometimes it looks really like, innocent and, and it's a good thing. Jesus at one point, he heals basically like a whole town of people. And they all come, all the sick come to him and he heals all of them. And then they're like, just stay with us. And he's like, no. Because I've got to bring the kingdom to that town and to that town and to that town. Think of the moment where they're, they're up the mountain and Peter's like, this is so good here, the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter sees Jesus in his glory and he's like, let's stay here. Jesus is like, no, I've got work to do. Even on his way to the cross, Peter's like, you don't have to do it that way. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. Always a little bit comical, but not so much for Peter, I'm sure. What it was with Jesus is that he was living out a life that was full of purpose and intent. He wasn't striving to try and earn the love of the Father. It wasn't like, no, I'm not going to be distracted because I need to build this thing, and if I build this thing, then maybe the Father will love me. That's not what's going on at all. He's so at peace with who the Father is. So understanding of the sovereignty being worked out of his Father, but so understanding of the necessity of, of God in the lives of the people that he came to serve, that he is not distracted by anything. And so whether it's doing life with his parents, the way that he grew up, 
whether it's his friendships, whether it's having a meal, whether it's going to the cross where he died, every waking moment that Jesus is alive here on earth was full of intention and purpose and fruitfulness. Wow. Everything that he did. Just like Nehemiah, Jesus could have said, I'm not coming down because I'm doing a great work. He knew the work that he was doing. He even sort of talks like it. In John 6, 38, he says, I have come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all of that that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Jesus knew what he was building, and it was precious. He knows what he's building, and it's precious. How often do we get distracted? And how good do we need to get at saying, I... I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. I feel like today, for some of us, there's things in our lives, pastimes, people, hobbies, areas of work, where we just need to say, today, I can't come down because I'm doing a good work. And it may be that you've already come down and you need to say, I'm not staying here (laughs) because God's called me to do a good work. But maybe you're on the wall and there's this distraction. You just feel yourself getting pulled and tempted to come down and do some, some other stuff. And I'm, I'm not saying that we all need to like sack off our, our jobs and work for the church and volunteer and all that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm saying at all. But everything that we do can be filled with purpose and intention when it comes to the kingdom of God. There are things that are just not worth doing. <laughs> They're just not. They're not full of purpose and intention. And we need to mature in that and grow in that. Have you grasped yet how amazing it is that the Lord God Almighty, the God of the Bible, would say over you, I want you to build with me. I've invited you to build my kingdom with me. And because of your work on this part of the wall, there's going to be lives that are going to get radically changed. People are going to get fed. They're going to get set free. Broken hearts are going to be bound up. People are going to come to know who I really am. Because I choose you. I choose you to come and build. What do we need to say? I can't come and do it. I'm doing a good work. Let's keep reading. In the same way, Sam Ballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it is written and reported among the nations. Geshem also says it. You and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. So they start lying now. He's just like making stuff up, saying the whole reason you're building this is because you want to become king. He talks about prophecies coming and all this kind of stuff and just starts to bring this case. But then Nehemiah responds in verse 8. says, then I sent to him saying, none of these things that you have said have been done. You are inventing them in your own mind. Have you ever come back against a lie that comes to your head that strongly? Have you ever started to, have you learned that yet? (laughs) You can just laugh at the lies of the enemy. It's really fun. It's really fun. You don't deserve to be up there speaking, preaching. You don't deserve your wife, your kids. You don't deserve, you don't deserve to be here in this place at this time. You don't deserve any of it. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's good, isn't it? Because that's grace. I'm not here because I put myself here. I'm here because the Lord Jesus put me here. I'm here because I'm forgiven and known and accepted in him. Nehemiah just dismisses it. He's like, you're literally making it up, mate. That's how we need to get with the enemy sometimes. You are literally making it up, mate. Nice one. And we carry on building, right? The lies come. 
And we go into verse 10. It says, Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehatabel, who was confined in his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. And I said, Should I, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. I understand, and I saw the God who had sent him, but he had pronounced this prophecy against me. Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. And it was for this purpose that he was hired, and this is where we'll finish, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. One of the biggest ways the enemy is going to come against us, church, is fear. It starts with a lie. It starts with just trying to sow doubt, coming against your identity in Christ. And when we buy the lie, fear starts to creep in. And when fear starts to creep in, it can lead to sin. Because believe it or not, fear is at the root of a lot of things that we do wrong against God and against one another. Think about it just for a moment. I've learned this. Bit of a short fuse over the years, still working on it. By the grace of God being sanctified every day. But came to realize that a lot of what was going on underneath the surface for me was fear. Why do I fly off the handle at my kids or my wife? It's because they're not living up to the expectation that I have of family. I'm afraid that we're not going to quite measure up to the mark. Why have I wandered down various different paths to find satisfaction and love and acceptance? Because I'm afraid of being alone. Fear creeps in when we buy the lie. When we buy the lie, we can become literally crippled. Part of my own story is I have journeyed, and, and the call of God was on my life to, to lead church, was for years was I, I was crippled with fear that my past would catch up with me. That people literally would, I don't know, I don't even know. what I, I don't even know what I thought. A lot of it wasn't reasonable, as Stu Gibbs used to often tell me. It'd be like, just keep praying. It's all right. <laughs> you, you'll get there. But just, I, I literally was just petrified. I can't even put reason in it. Just petrified. I don't even know what was going to happen. And I came to terms with the fact where it's like, okay, in the end, I had to just let go of it all. And stop trying to like work it all out and just go freestyle and say, you know what? If the enemy brings the worst that he can bring to me, he cannot take away the fact that I'm saved and in Christ. And, and the thing with fear, we combat it with faith, but the thing with faith is that behind it has to be truth. Because if there's not truth, your, your, your faith, you're, you're mustering it up in your own strength. And I used to do that a lot. And I just want to say this, that, that to get to genuine faith in Jesus, so remember, you know the, like the phrase, it's not the size of your faith, it's where you place your faith. That's truth. Because the truth is Jesus. You have to come to a place where you understand, look, where, where you believe, you just choose to believe the fact that what the Bible says of me is true. It's just true. And, and I'm not going to put a but at the end of the sentence. It's just true that Jesus Christ died for me, that my sin is completely eradicated. And as I confess my sin and bring it before the cross, I am completely set free. I have to accept the truth that I'm a son of the living God. I have to accept the truth that I'm going to live forever with him. But you see, these parts of identity just keep growing and growing and growing. And this is, this is where it sort of gets to with Nehemiah. Again, it sounds quite arrogant. He says, should such a man as I run away? And, and this is where I just want, want to like, land us. That could sound really arrogant. 
And we hate that in this kind of culture, don't we? We're like, we don't want arrogant people. Certainly don't want arrogant Christians running around doing their thing. We're like a bit like, no, we're all, we're all good for that. He's like, should, should a man such as I, you know, this confidence isn't coming from confidence in himself. His confidence is coming because he's understood truth, and that's what's given him faith. The truth is that he's called by God to do the work. If you really are, whoever you are here, fill the gap. If you really are a son or a daughter of the living God, I promise you this, that one day you're going to see Jesus face to face. You're going to see him, and he's going to accept you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far astray you've gone. It doesn't matter how dark and dismal that moment was. He's going to say, welcome home. And I promise, if you're a son or a daughter of the living God, that he has said that all things have been accredited to you through Christ Jesus. Everything's been given to you. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been given to you. He's invited you to build the church now until when he comes again or when you go to be with him. He said, go do it. Not go do it and I'm going to score you out of 10. Go do it and surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. When we start to get hold of our identity, the truth of the identity, we can come with genuine faith. And we can start to say, should a man such as I run away? I've had to say that. I've had to say that. About church leadership, about being a dad, about being a husband, about being a good friend. I've had to get to the place. Should a man such as I run away? No. No. I don't need to hide. Because Jesus has covered it all for me. And I promise you, church, this is exactly the same for you. It's exactly the same for you, bar none. Don't let fear cripple you. Let the identity that Jesus speaks over you break it and find confidence in it. As Christians, we should have our heads held high, not because we're better than anyone else, because what Jesus has done for us. It should breed confidence inside of us. Amen. Well done for keeping up, guys. Sorry if I... I only had about four more pages, but I'll leave those for another time. <clears throat> One of the things that I just want to finish with, um, at the end of chapter 6, it basically says, the wall was finished. And it says, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were af afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This is where we get confidence from. It's in Christ, in Christ alone. It's what we're going to sing. He was mocked. He was threatened. People tried to distract him. They lied about him. They came with everything that they had, and he was perfect in all of it. So where you're not perfect, he accredits his perfection to you. This is our confidence. When we gather together and lift up our voices, when we sing, when we find confidence, when we find our identity in Jesus Christ, I tell you, the enemy trembles. We will build this church, not in our own strength, but we will build this church on the grace and the foundation of Jesus Christ alone, and we will build our lives accordingly too. So let's stand and let's sing this song together.
Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fields are still, when striving. speaks today 
um, the Holy Spirit is moving and speaking. Um, Samantha just feels like um, God has given her a poem to share to us. And then I'm going to lead us into communion. So Samantha's going to share, and then um, we're going to take communion together as a way of standing together firm on Christ alone. So Samantha, over to you. Thank you. Um, it really just hits on everything that Ben was saying um, around the lies of the enemy and just feeling a little bit unworthy. Uh, so I hope it really touches someone today. I've been trying to write something for the king of my heart, heart on the pedal, directing me to start. And yet, how can an imperfect being achieve sufficiency? Standing full throttle by the heel of the Trinity, I delve into something I'm yet to know. Watch you caress my insecurities in my head, I'm screaming no. It's a scary place to be, barefaced and owning up to your vulnerabilities, unearthing your undesirability, you're ugly, you're unseedy, and it's in the chaos that I feel alive, and it's in the chaos that I feel anything. But I've been trying to write something for the king of my heart, and sometimes I feel oblivious to what's written in his heart, and yet he offers an imperfect being sufficiency, ties it all together in the heel of the trinity, calls me to face my insecurities. In my head, I scream no more. It's a scary place to be, barefaced and owning up to your vulnerabilities, confronting your undesirability, and it's in the chaos that I need him the most. It's in the chaos I hold on to the Holy Ghost just to feel anything. Samantha, so look guys, I don't know what the what lies or whatever it is that the enemy has been trying to speak to you today. Um, one thing I know is that he is greater and that we can stand for the truth of who Jesus is and what he says about you. And we can stand on Christ alone. When we take communion together, which is what we're going to do now, it is a spiritual declaration of the truth of who he is and what he has done for you and who he says you are now. That you are purchased with the blood of Christ. He speaks a better word over your life through his shed blood. And we get to stand on that. And we get to build our lives on that. That you are beloved of God. You are his treasure. You may feel like the opposition is overwhelming. The truth is that he is greater. That he has died in order to save you. He loves you eternally. Let's take this bread and this wine. Let me pray as you take the bread and wine. Father, we take... Thank you.